0: Our final group for the night is Republican Dana Maxfield, Independent Louis Myers, Democratic incumbent Christopher Pearson, Libertarian Loyal Ploof, and Democratic incumbent Michael Sorotkin. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Thank
1: you, thanks for having us.
0: The ground rules for tonight are that the candidates will make opening statements of up to two minutes each, and then they will answer prepared questions as well as questions from the audience for two minutes with a possible one-minute rebuttal. We're gonna start with our opening statements and ask the candidates why they are running and what their experience is that they bring to the position. And we'll start with Dana.
2: Thank you. My name is Dana Maxfield. I currently live in Milton. Uh, I am running because I feel that there's a pretty significant imbalance in the representation for the Chittenden County Senate. Uh, I've, over the campaign, I've heard countless times just many people feel as though they don't have a voice down in Montpelier in the Senate. Um, they've commented that, uh, you know, I don't come off as a political elite. I'm not deep into the, into the Republican party in the state. Um, and you know, many of them say that they just feel like I have a genuine uh, demeanor about me, uh, no, no ulterior motives or anything like that. Um, and for those reasons they feel like I'd be a good voice for them down there that they, that they don't currently have right now. Um, it means a lot to me that they, that they think, you know, that they, that they feel that way uh, because I am just an average Vermonter, uh, that just saw an opportunity um, and, and feel like I've got a duty to, you know, serve and, and uh, bring a voice and, and diversity of thought down to Montpelier.
0: Thank you. Lewis, opening statement.
3: I'm Lewis Myers, and uh, I've been campaigning for the State Senate for nearly a year now. I've met thousands of you uh, in every community across Chittenden County. I've uh, been in most communities twice now. And I'd like to thank everyone who came to their door and spent the time to talk with me. I think hearing your thoughts and concerns has been extremely helpful. There are two reasons why I'm running and uh, two things I'd like you to know about me. One is that I'm an independent, politically, and a true independent, not aligned with either or any of the major or minor parties. I do have a core set of beliefs, but just as I do in medicine, uh, in my profession, I would like to take every issue on its own merits. Look at the data, look at the history, what's been tried, talk to as many people as possible, as many experts, and as many people in the community, and then make a decision. The current uh, delegation of state senators uh, from Chittenden County uh, are all Democrats or Democrat progressives. And in late spring they released a statement stating that they were going to run as a slate, which was somewhat confusing to some people uh, because they do actually have to stand for election individually. But I think what it suggests is that there is, that they do tend to vote alike uh, and perhaps at times think alike. And I do feel that Chittenden County deserves a state senator who will and can think for himself. Second thing I'd like you to know about me is I'm a physician, and I've been working as a physician for 25 years. Most of that time was in primary care, and the last six years as a hospital-based physician. I've taken care of, again, thousands of uh, people, and I'm, Tremendously concerned at the direction we're going in healthcare in Vermont. Obviously, healthcare is something that touches every person in Vermont at some point in their lives. Uh, I hope that we'll get a chance to talk during this hour more, in more detail about healthcare, but we are embarked on a plan called the All Payer Plan, which very few Vermonters even know about, and yet it's going to change the whole landscape of healthcare in Vermont. In fact, uh, in talking to a number of the legislators, legislators, I'm not sure that sometimes they understand all the nuances and how this is going to affect uh, patients and citizens. Uh, I do understand how it's going to affect you and I see it every day and I have some strong feelings about our health care system and hope to share that as we go on.
0: Thank you. Krista for opening statements.
1: Thank you for having us, Diane, and for Channel 17, you know, we live in an era where the media and uh, the public debate is a little frayed, I would say, and and I'm very grateful to have a grassroots media like you providing. My name's Chris Pearson. I'm finishing up my first term in the State Senate. I'm one of the newest senators from Chittenden County. Prior to that, I'd served for four terms, five terms, actually eight years in the House. Um, And I have a history of standing up for working families, recognizing that middle class families are completely overburdened by our tax structure particularly the property tax i have pushed for uh, a school funding system based on income i have been outspoken on the need to raise wages was the first legislator to introduce a bill to put a fifteen dollar minimum wage bill forward i'm very proud that last year we put a fifteen dollar minimum wage bill on the governor's desk frustrated that he vetoed that i've long supported family leave i have been outspoken on issues like climate change and cleaning up the lake as a member of the house i was one of the co-founders of what's called the climate caucus trying to elevate this this uh, burning crisis and and try to get some momentum moving forward for solutions i think our economy can be boosted if we look at the tech sector and we look at uh, green energy, renewable energy, you see already uh, strengthening of our economy around renewable energy jobs. We have to look to the future to boost our economy. And more importantly, we need to recognize that working families are seriously struggling. Poverty is very real in Vermont, and we need those voices in Montpelier, and we need uh, legislators and senators that are going to stand up for working families. I'm proud to have done that, and I look forward to uh, continuing if you can vote for me.
0: Thank you, Loyal, opening statements. Hi, uh,
4: thank you, Uh, my name's Loyal Plouffe. I have uh, different experiences than these candidates. I've actually dealt with homelessness, so I know what it's like to be poor, and I believe my voice. Definitely needs to be up there, you know. uh, Dana talked about the equality going on there. We got all Democrats, one voice. So we get this rubber stamp going on. We gotta stop the rubber stamp. We need different voices up there. I do have experiences. I've been on the school board, housing board. Uh, I've done a lot for the community. I ran uh, ballot referendums. Uh, Currently I work at a homeless shelter for dogs. I'm a dog walker, a filmmaker, and what really got me to want to run is I had to start thinking, should I stay in a state or should I leave? I started looking at my wallet. I started looking at other states that are more affordable. So that's where I'm at. I said, uh, you know, I want to fight for where I live. I've lived here all my life. I want to raise my family. I want to be here. The problem is we're the fourth highest tax state. That's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. You know, uh, we got problems. We got Act 46, which I don't agree with. I'm planning to get rid of the income tax. Uh, I want to get rid of uh, S55. Uh, I want to start making the state better again. You know Remember back in the '70s when one parent could work and one would stay home? You don't see that anymore. And the problem is the government. The government keeps putting their hands in and keeps pushing businesses out. We gotta encourage businesses to come in. We gotta start looking at Act 250 and revise Act 250. So businesses wanna come in. We need a business-friendly atmosphere. We're not gonna do that if we push $15 an hour. I don't get $15 an hour. I'm happy with what I get. You know, I struggle, I work two, three jobs. I deal with that, I love what I do. I'm, I'm happy with that. The way I want to deal with that is we get rid of the income tax. That puts more people's money in people's pockets without offending businesses who want to stay here. If you look at McDonald's, Burger King, these places are start putting kiosks in. If you look at grocery stores, they're starting to put in more self checks. So we're going to start losing a lot of jobs. We're going to lose businesses. I'm going to be probably one of them that will be cut too. So we got to start looking at things like that. The uh, other thing I want to do is uh, animal abuse registry that'll help us make it safer. I wanna work with our schools to have conflict management, stress management, and have our kids
5: learn about firearms. And that's about me. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Michael, opening statements.
5: Uh, Thank you, Diane, and thank you to Channel 17 and to the people who are tuning in tonight. Uh, I gotta say, uh, this is only the second forum that the senators have been invited to and the first one was friday and there are no other schedules we have 13 people running so this is a an important uh, night and i really want to thank those people who have tuned in Um, i have been in the senate for five years i came to the senate under the saddest of circumstances Uh, my late wife senator sally fox uh, had uh, battled sarcoma for two years. She was known as a human services hero and was well recognized as helping those in need. We raised two children in the uh, great public schools of Essex um, and uh, I have worked for, for 25 years we were there. Uh, I, st- I am a lawyer by trade. Um, I started my legal career at Vermont Legal Aid helping senior citizens and. Uh, low-income consumers. For the past 35 years, I have dedicated my professional life to advocating for working families and consumers. Um, In 2014, I got elected in my own right to the Senate and re-elected again in 2016. And I was very proud last year I was appointed to be chair of the Senate Economic Development, Housing and General Affairs Committee, which I like to consider uh, the Consumer Affairs Committee of the Senate. dealing with uh, labor relations as well. So it's my dream job. Uh, I led the fight on both minimum wage and unpaid family leave. And uh, if I have the good fortune to be reelected, those bills will be foremost uh, on our agenda for this year.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Let's talk about the economy. According to Forbes Magazine, Vermont's economic outlook is projected to be the second worst in the U.S. over the next five years, while at the same time, income growth is expected to lag behind. Do you agree with this assessment? What is your plan of action to strengthen Vermont's economic outlook? And, Lewis, you'll start us off.
3: Thank you. I, I think when I think about the economy, I think we could approach it in three, uh, three levels. We can do the uh, somewhat more superficial level, a, a more solid level and then uh, get to some of the deeper questions. On the more superficial level, we had the proposal by the governor this past year to uh, offer five to $10,000 for people who wanted to come to Vermont and work remotely. Uh, I felt, and in talking to a number of uh, IT people, that that was, uh, I felt that that was, uh, in some ways humiliating for Vermont. It felt like we were bribing people to come to our state and that most of the people that came would not have a real investment in Vermont and many of them would have left within a year or two after the first cold winter. I think on a more deeper level we can look at economic development zones uh, in some of the harder hit parts of our state which would include practically everywhere outside of Chittenden County uh, in which we could for a set period of time reduce or uh, relax some of the rather strict regulations, business regulations we have in the state, we could have Incubator cells, such as, uh, as we see in Brattleboro, which is helping, because that would help develop some critical mass in those communities, which hopefully would then uh, reinforce itself. But I think, on a much more basic level, uh, the governor talks often that we need more people uh, moving into the state. And unless the southeast, uh, maybe 20 or 30 years from now, the southeast United States is underwater and the southwest is uninhabitable because of drought. Perhaps California will have split in two with an earthquake. I'm not wishing that on any of them. But uh, perhaps then people would begin to migrate here. But I think short of that, if we really want people to move to Vermont and settle in and build businesses, we're going to have to talk about our vision for Vermont and uh, our idea of what Vermont means. Uh, We are a very, many of our uh, communities are very cohesive. They also happen to be across Vermont, generally 98% or more white, Caucasian. Um, what we've seen in the Midwest United States is in many of the rust belt towns which are dying where factories are closed, schools are emptying, houses are going unsold, many of those towns have seen a revival as uh, different groups of people have come in. Many of these have been Spanish speaking uh, American citizens but Spanish speaking and bringing their Hispanic culture with them. It has created its own challenges, but it has created also a revival across parts of the Midwest and even in upstate New York.
0: I'm gonna stop you there, Lewis. (laughs) Chris, talking about the economic outlook of Vermont.
3: Yeah,
1: when I think of it, we have a couple of challenges that face us in particular around economics in Vermont. One is that we're one of the oldest states, and so I think the outlook reflects that we're having people leave the workforce more and more. We're also a very rural state, and all around this country, uh, if you look at rural states, their economies are uh, slowing and not keeping pace. And those are, you know, you could look at Wyoming, which has uh, no progressives and, and very few Democrats elected. Those dynamics exist there. So I think it's unfair to look at state government and, and blame these dynamics, these large actually global trends on Montpelier. Now, that said, Montpelier needs to and is working to try to turn that around. One of the ways, and I hope we'll talk about it a lot tonight, is wages. Wages have not uh... kept pace for folks who are at the bottom of the economic spectrum no question about it um, we need to we, w- where our wealthiest families have been booming we need to try to turn that around we need to put money in the pockets of working people if you work forty hours a week you should not live in poverty that's the basic premise behind a livable wage when you pass fifteen dollar minimum wage you begin to seriously solve that and remember that Folks who work for big businesses, whether it's Walmart, we saw recently Amazon in the news. Uh, Amazon decided to give a raise to workers starting November 1st, $15. Folks who work at Walmart in Williston are qualified for food stamps, rental assistance, all sorts of government programs. So those low-wage employers are actually putting a burden on taxpayers. We have got to fix the economy so that when you're working full-time, you don't live in poverty. The age demographics are more challenging, but again, if you make the economy attractive for families to move here, start, raise their kids, I'm one of, I think, two or three senators with young kids at home out of 30, so I bring that perspective to the Senate. We have to promote family policies, and paid leave fits right into that, so that people choose to raise their families here, and you have to give them the square deal of working 40 hours and being able to survive.
0: Thank you. Loyal Vermont economic outlook. Again, I've
4: been here all my life, and what we need to do is we got to get jobs to move here. You want people to pay $15 an hour? Let's flood the state with jobs. That's the way to do it. Let's not force businesses to pay $15 an hour. If they can't afford to pay it, they're going to close up, leave, or cut people. That doesn't help our economy at all. That, if I'm a businessman, I saw that, I want to want to invest here. You want people to invest here. You want them to move to families here. You want to, we've got to stop taking people's individual rights away. We want to have our freedoms here. We want people to come, come to Vermont and say, hey, we've got our freedoms. We've got good jobs here. We have skiing. We've got hiking. We've got the culture here. We're losing our culture here in Vermont. So that is what we need to do. We need to... Look at Act 250 again, we have gotta see what the problem is, we have gotta see what regulations are keeping businesses from coming, get businesses here, bring marijuana here, bring people here, they're gonna start seeing that we have our rights. So those are the things I wanna work on, again, to stimulate our economy and get rid of the income tax. Again, we get rid of the income tax, that's gonna put money back into the poor, working poor's pockets without, again, intrusing on businesses.
0: Okay, Thank you. we're talking about the Vermont Economic Outlook. Michael.
5: Thank you. Um, we have our challenges. Uh, Chris has mentioned a couple of them, being a rural state and being an aging state, um, but I, for one, am bullish on Vermont if we do it the right way. When I became chair of the Economic Development Committee, the very first witness I had was Michael Schirling, who is the Secretary of the Agency of Economic Development. And um, I asked him, the first question I asked him, I said, what makes Vermont different? What can we draw upon in order to bring people here? And he says, it's our quality of life and our proximity to urban areas like Boston and New York. Um, So we talked some more. And when you focus on the things that make Vermont unique and you focus on the Vermont brand, whether it's Tourism, whether it's technology, whether it's working lands. Uh, we have established a working lands enterprise fund to put more money to help small businesses uh, develop and make uh, after after farm products that they can sell, such as furniture and, and forestry. Um, we are a state of small businesses. Um, 90, uh, 90% of our businesses in the state of Vermont have 20 or fewer employees. We need to focus on helping those businesses. And Senator Pearson put a bill in this year where we're going to have one-stop shopping for small businesses to incorporate and to get started. Uh, it's, a, it's a great bill and it has uh, uh, several cycles to go in its development, but that's a start. Um, We need to help those small businesses develop and we need to build upon what Vermont does best. And then we can be bullish on Vermont and we can make our economy grow. We shouldn't be doing things like several governors ago, we had a $5 million slush fund that was set up that gave $2 million to global foundries. It's a drop in the bucket to them to take that kind of money and give it to one very profitable, multi-international company as opposed to giving it to our small business to give them incentives is not the direction we should be going in. That kind of system might work for New York. We can't keep up with them where they give tax credits of bazillion dollars to every business out there. We just don't have the resource to, to, to do it that way.
0: Okay, we're talking about the Vermont Economic Outlook. Dana.
2: Thank you. Well, I agree with Senator Pearson that uh, the, the aging population that we've got here in Vermont is is certainly not helping us out any. Um, But I don't feel like we have any incentive really for them to stay at this point. I think that what we need to do is streamline Act 250, encourage businesses to open or stay in Vermont as opposed to leaving like they are right now. Uh, and give more opportunity for those younger people to work and thrive in in the state of Vermont. I understand the argument for a higher wage but when you consider that along with that higher wage is going to come more payroll taxes for an employer that they're going to have to pay they're going to have more expenses so they're going to raise the price of their services and their products. So if you get a higher wage, what good does it do if you're paying more for everything that you need?
0: Okay, let's, uh, let's switch to healthcare. How do we limit healthcare spending in Vermont while also remaining one of the healthiest states in the nation? And Chris, we're gonna start with you.
1: Well, this is a great question. And you know, our health economy is approaching 20% of the economy here in Vermont. And it's, if it were easy, you know, other states would be doing it. it. It is very difficult. We have in this country a uniquely complex and cumbersome healthcare system, and Vermont is uh, struggles with our power to really make a dent because the federal government has so much power over over so much of our healthcare dollars. I also think. One of the challenges we have that we can address directly is some of the we need to right size some of the players in the Vermont system. So we have basically a single insurer that has enormous influence over our health system, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and then you have the U- University of Vermont Medical S- Center. They have exorbitant amount of power over the system. In fact, they're the only entity that has power over Blue Cross, and Blue Cross has power over everybody else. So we kind of are are backing into a system where you have a bit of a too-big-to-fail situation with the hospital. And I think it's important we right-size that. One of uh, an intriguing idea that I heard uh, during the nurses strike, and I'm proud to be endorsed by the nurses, but one of the ideas that came up was uh, around potentially having a legislative appointees on the UVM MC Board. I think that's an intriguing one. I want to talk about that with colleagues in the Senate and in the House because, the bottom line is, they are basically a public institution. We, they, they are, All their money either comes directly from the government, from taxpayers that are paying for public employees, from Medicare, which is our uh, senior health care that comes through federal tax dollars, or from Vermonters who are paying their insurance premiums that go to the hospital. We need answers from UVMMC, and we need to right-size their influence. I think there are some good things that we're doing. We are looking at... at people and communities in a holistic way now. If you look at uh, the way we handle trauma, we're beginning to recognize that that is an underpinning of addiction, of all sorts of uh, corrections spending, all sorts of uh, spending, public spending down the the road. So I'm a little bit optimistic, but we have to go after the big players and kind of right-size their influence if we're gonna bring healthcare spending under control in Vermont. Okay,
4: Loyal. Uh, Well, my solution, we need to go into a more of a free market solution. We need to bring in more assurers to Vermont. Like me, I deal with a bad back. So let's say Vermont government's the only one that controls it. They might not provide the care I need for my bad back. So we need more options in there, and that should bring the price down. I know I have a friend of mine. He lives in another state. He's got the greatest insurance, chiropractic, everything. He chose his insurance government and say, hey, you gotta have insurance and this is your insurance. We need to get rid of government mandates. We gotta get back to, you know, get back to the roots here. Get government right out of the insurance company, out of healthcare, you know, we're not doctors. So that's my solution. Uh, It'll take a little while. After you elect me, you'll see some difference.
0: Okay, we're talking about healthcare spending, Michael.
5: So we do have to right-size the players. One of the things, I'm on the finance committee, and one of the things we learned, it was like pulling teeth to get this information, but there's two sets of reimbursement rates in the state of Vermont from Blue Cross Blue Shield and MVP, and one is for the medical center hospital and the other is for everybody else. And sometimes it could be two to three times higher that the medical center gets reimbursed than an independent doctor. And So one of the things that I've been working on with Senator Ash is some sort of semblance of pay equity or pay parity for independent practices so we don't lose all our independent doctors in the state, which are being swallowed up by uh, the medical center. We need to focus on prevention. Uh, It's clear that if we, put more money into primary care and prevention we can save expensive surgeries and hospitalizations down the road. And there was a bill that I supported in the legislature dealing with universal primary care which I'll support again and I think uh, that would be uh, of help. Um, Price transparency is another thing. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the news last night there was a story on about this GAD provision that insurance and PBMs imposed upon pharmacists, that if a patient comes into their pharmacy and has a 40% coinsurance or $40 copay, and they could buy that same product cheaper without using their insurance, they're not allowed to be told about that, and they pay the higher figure through the insurance company. It's outrageous. We have colonoscopies and procedures that are uh, a third or half of the cost down in, in Porter versus up here, but people don't know that. If you try to read an explanation of benefit form, you can't do, you can't figure it out. So price transparency, which some states are starting to work on, we passed a bill. We've got a long way to go, but that may help uh, control costs in some way. Okay,
0: great. Thank you, Dana.
2: I actually strongly agree with Senator Sorotkin that uh, we need to push the price transparency issue. Um, I don't think that it's fair that you know, I, I can go into the hospital or, or a, you know, any provider, and I, I'm not going to have a clue what that's going to cost until after it's already done. Uh, I think that with the transparency, people can make better decisions um, you know, for what is, is going to work best for them, keep the costs down, uh, and, and just what the right decision will be for them. Uh, I also think that uh, there's a lot of inefficiencies in the systems uh, revolving around the insurance. Um, You know, there are times where a certain service may be billed at several thousand dollars, and then after months of it going back and forth between the provider and the insurance company, it gets settled for a couple hundred. Um, It just seems like that's an awful waste of time and resources to me.
0: Uh, We're talking about health care spending. Lewis.
3: Thank you. I would simply point out, first of all, that uh, as we health care does affect everyone, it is one of the biggest, uh, most expensive aspects of our economy. And there there is no physician in the state senate. And in fact, it's been 35 years, three and a half decades since we had a physician in the state senate. There is no physician on our Green Mountain Care Board, which is the regulatory, health regulatory board for our state. Our Secretary of Human Services, Mr. Gobe, Al Gobe, who's a very competent fellow, but his professional background is as a restaurant owner, and he's never taken care of a patient. And I think that that is telling, that we do not have any physicians in these three major parts of our legislative, administrative, and, and uh, regulatory bodies. Uh, the state, I actually agree with uh, uh, Senator Sorotkin, Senator Pearson, uh, that we, uh, when they talk about this too-big-to-fail concept, there's no question that the University of Vermont has accrued uh, their power and their financial and otherwise, and is now di- uh, di- it's going to be very difficult. Um, we're not unique in that. It's happened across the country. Economic warfare between the insurance companies and uh, hospital systems has driven up the cost of care. Unfortunately, we're uh, embarking on, as I mentioned earlier, the all-payer plan, which very few Vermonters are aware of. It's going to be an all-encompassing plan that will affect every person in this state. And as the, the national uh, studies are starting to come out, uh, they're not favorable to this kind of plan. Uh, two studies recently in the New England Journal, one as recently as last month, uh, suggest that these are at best break even and at worst can cost a, cost a tremendous amount of money. There are other options, simp- much simpler options we could have gone to and perhaps still could. One is a reissuance plan, which seven states in this country have gotten a waiver from the government for, in which the federal and state governments step in to backstop insurance companies for their more catastrophic costs, and it allows the insurance companies to lower their premiums. In fact, in Maryland, where this is, uh, Maryland just, instead of having a 30 percent increase in their premiums, they've just announced a nearly 20 percent decrease in premiums in the individual market, and most of that is because of this reissuance policy. So I think there are other options we could take. Uh, If we do, in in fact, go forward with the all-payer plan, uh, I want to use my experience to be there to make sure that patients are protected.
0: Great. Thank you all. Uh, We have a question from the audience that plays off of what we're talking about. Uh, The Trump administration, as part of its efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, is now allowing small employers to leave the small group marketplace, the exchange, um, and go to associations. There's a broad agreement this will lead to higher costs for those who are left in the individual small group insurance poll. Some believe this will put the stability of our health insurance marketplace at risk. Do you share these concerns? Will you work to prevent this from taking place? And Loyal, we're going to start with you.
3: Mm,
4: that's a difficult one. Uh, what was the question again?
0: So the question is whether uh, individuals should buy insurance through the exchanges, the Vermont Health Connect, or be allowed to do through associations like the Chambers of Commerce that we used to have years back, um, and this is a change that the Trump administration is talking about having.
4: Uh, well, it's a change I agree with. Actually, I don't agree with much with Donald Trump. Actually, but that's one I can agree with. Again, we're talking about healthcare. We're talking about uh, oops, Thank you. We're talking about the problems with healthcare, and I think the small businesses will actually benefit from this more than anything else. So. I'll leave it at that. I'm still doing a lot of research on it, so
5: thank you. Thank you. Michael. Uh, Not only do I agree with the concern, but in the Finance Committee, we've already acted on the concern. We passed a law this past year that deals with this precise issue, which um, says that the uh, commissioner of Department of Financial and Regulations has to promulgate rules to protect the quality of the plans that would go outside to these association plans. So they have to have all the essential benefits that exist in the the in-house plans, plus they also have certain reserve rates and all the other normal indicia of insurance protection. So whereas other states where these plans can now be issued through associations can be pretty shaky plans, we've passed a law that says plans that are issued for for Vermont companies have to have those protections, so we've already done it.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Dana, healthcare uh, exchanges versus associations.
2: See, I don't really think that uh, healthcare is one of those things that should be dictated to us by the government. Um, I don't believe that uh, you you can put a one-size-fits-all Insurance policy on everybody. Everybody has their own individual needs. Um, so, um, I worry with like a single payer type insurance um, that the, the quality of care will diminish. I mean, we, we you know. We've heard of situations where people from Canada, for example, will come down to the United States because we've got, um, yeah, right. the, uh, you know, our doctors are not tied in with our health insurance and, and dictated as they are up there. So I, I believe that we do need to continue to get away from the, uh, the exchange.
0: Lewis, we're talking about uh, exchanges versus associations in healthcare payments.
3: Well, I, act- I agree with uh, Senator Serrachin that there, need- there is concern, and I'm glad that the Finance Committee has moved forward with establishing, <coughs> excuse me, some basic um, criteria. <coughs> excuse me, the um, uh, because these in- policies can be very complicated, and people can get trapped into insurance policies that essentially pay for nothing, uh, practically nothing. Having said that, I think uh, we need to be open to other possibilities. As many viewers know, uh, Amazon, I believe it's uh, uh, Berk- Berkshire Hathaway and uh, um, J- uh, one of the major banks, I think it's Chase, have recently joined together with their thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees and are establishing a healthcare system and insurance system for their employees. and. Uh, Adewal Guande, who's a, a brilliant physician and author, is going to actually be the medical director of this. I think it's a fascinating possibility, and it's a, an experiment worth watching. And I think we don't want to uh, cut those off before they have a chance to work, but I do think uh, in terms of some of these uh, fly-by-night insurance companies that are certain to flood Vermont if we, if we relax our requirements, that, that is a concern. Okay. Chris.
1: I, I share the uh, listener's concern that we're moving away from uh, from the exchange, and, and you know, the, the thing is, people have to understand the reason we moved into the exchange and away from associations and from stratified health insurance pools is because that's where you get cherry picking, and so you have. People who are relatively healthy get a little lower cost insurance, and that's something that people are excited about, rightly. The downside is that people who are ill, who have, who have cancer, have a pre-existing condition, have chronic pain, they have extremely expensive insurance. And so as a community, the basic premise is we're all in this together. I could walk, I'm very healthy, I'm, I'm glad to be healthy, my kids and family are healthy, any of us could walk across the street, get hit by a bus, and spend months and months in the hospital. This is the premise of having a community. And when it comes to health care, we are better off. The Vermont uh, legislature and, and several governors, and this is not a partisan issue, have agreed that we're better off when we stick together and lump us all in together. And that <coughs> means healthy younger people, particularly, older folks who have maybe chronic conditions, we're in the same pool together because we're all gonna age and eventually need healthcare. When you break that up, you start having all sorts of perverse impacts that are basically fine until you need your healthcare, and then you find that you're not covered, or your deductibles or your out-of-pocket are extraordinary. I talk to families all the time who are live in fear of actually using their healthcare, and these folks have insurance. This is what happens when you break up the pools into as many little groups as the insurance companies can create. We do better as a community uh, when we stick together on the question of health care.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, let's switch uh, to talk about marijuana. Now that marijuana is legal, do you support taxing and regulating it? Michael.
5: I do. Um, I voted for it I think several times uh, in the Senate already. Uh, I, I've always felt we should learn lessons from other states, and I think we have commissions that have been looking at other states' experiences. But we need to keep, now that we've legalized it, we went from decriminalization to legalization, now the next step is likely to be tax and regulation. Uh, We need to uh, make sure that the product is safe uh, from seed to sale. And um, we need to make sure that our younger kids I'm not a supporter of any kids starting young. Uh, the 21-year age should be as sacred as possible. We should have sufficient resources for those people who get addicted or start too young uh, to get uh, um, help if they need it. Uh, uh, the driving while impaired issue is uh, is an issue for me. Um, uh, we still need to uh, find a, a roadside test uh, which would be the most helpful, but short of that, the resources that we could raise through taxation and regulation could be used to to hire more officers to do impairment testing at the roadside that could help alleviate <coughs> one of the significant problems that still exists with a, uh, a, a recreational marijuana law.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Dana, you're up next.
2: I agree. I, I do believe that we need to tax and regulate for product safety. Um, WE ALSO NEED TO uh, PUT SOME OF THAT REVENUE FROM THE TAXES INTO uh, RESEARCHING ROADSIDE TESTING FOR IT. THAT ABSOLUTELY NEEDS TO BE ADDRESSED. Um, I DON'T GET BEHIND THE IDEA OF ANY REVENUE FROM THIS GOING TO ANYTHING OUTSIDE OF THE MARIJUANA ITSELF. I THINK THAT... Like I said, we need to focus on, on figuring out roadside testing and I think that it needs to go, the rest of the revenue needs to go towards uh, education and prevention programs.
0: Okay, we're talking about taxing and regulating marijuana. Louis.
3: Thank you. I, <clears throat> I supported de, uh, decriminalization of marijuana. I thought it was um, wrong to send people to prison for possessing small amounts of marijuana. I was less enthusiastic about legalizing it. And as it was as occurred last year and I at this point I oppose uh, tax and regulate for two reasons First of all as a physician uh, You know when I approach a medical situation I think it's important to think about what we know and what we don't know because sometimes what we don't know is as Or more important than what we know there's a lot about marijuana that we don't know at this point in terms of its both short and long-term effects on people. Part of the reason we don't know is because the research hasn't been able to be done, because it's unfortunately still a Scheduled one uh, medication on the federal level. Uh, But I think that as more research is, is done, I think we'll have a better sense of the effects it can have. The second reason why I oppose it is because if you look at the history of any substance over the history of the United States, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, uh, opioids in the 1990s and more recently electronic cigarettes and vaping. What we've seen in these situations is even when these le- this legislation is passed with good intentions, for-profit companies are going to flood the market and they're going to want to uh, produce, they're going to want to target young people, they're going to want to target heavy users. They're not going to make money from the, uh, someone, for example, who has one marijuana cigarette every month. They're going to want to target, they're going to want people using it every day. So I think we need to uh, be aware of that. And I think before we move toward any uh, tax and regulate, I think we, it would be worth our while to uh, see, have more research.
0: Okay. We're talking about regulating and taxing marijuana. Chris.
3: Yes, I definitely
1: support taxing and regulating marijuana. I've been a vocal proponent of that, introducing bills in the House and trying to push the House to go there when the Senate had passed the bill a number of years ago. The bottom line for me is uh, a couple of things. We should treat marijuana just the way we treat alcohol and tobacco. Nobody sings the virtues of alcohol and tobacco, but we recognize that they are part of our lives and we need to handle it responsibly. Um, If you tax and regulate, you have a better sense of what people are actually buying. You have a better ability to keep it out of the hands of people under 21. And um, you have then resources, as Senator Sorokin said, to deal with treatment options and law enforcement. So I think there's a lot of benefits to taxing and regulating. But one that we haven't talked about and I think is very important, you're seeing in states that have taxed and regulated marijuana a reduction in opiate overdoses. And that's because uh, marijuana is a decent option for chronic pain for some people. And the more that uh, opiate, problems become high profile, people who have chronic pain are actually nervous about going down the opiate road and choosing an alternative. And in states where they can buy marijuana, they are choosing that. And so you're seeing a drop in overdose, and you're seeing some positive correlations. The other reason that I support taxing and regulating is that we need those resources to actually treat the opiate crisis, which is tearing families apart and and tearing at the fabric of our communities. We've done a good job. We've 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 taken away the waiting lines for treatment, but we need uh, to take the next step, and that's going to require resources, which are hard to come by up here. Taxing and regulated marijuana is an obvious link that I think we could use those re- revenue to uh, do a better job of helping people get off opiates.
0: Okay,
4: loyal. Uh, yeah, I've been uh, working on it for many years trying to get it legalized, you know. I'm an occasional user myself, got a bad back, broke my back what, about a year ago. So I've been dealing with a lot of back pain. So. Uh, we need definitely need to get to next step so we can actually sell it in stores and places can sell it. Uh, actually, farmers can benefit by growing it and selling it. I know there's a lot of farmers out there struggling. The good thing about marijuana too, it's not an addictive substance. If you do your research, Michael, it's not addictive substance. Uh, give me your email. I'll give you the articles on that and the studies. But uh, the. The huge problem I have with it, it's a scheduled one drug still federally, so you can't buy firearms. So that's something I'm gonna change here in this state. If you smoke marijuana, you should be able to buy firearms. That's, that's ridiculous, you can't own firearms if you smoke marijuana. So that's something I wanna change as your next state senator, thank you.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, we had another question from the audience. What is your opinion on the Explain the Asterisk legislation campaign? Do you think college students that are dismissed for sexual misconduct should be able to transfer to other schools with no notation on their transcript as to why they were dismissed? This is referred to as Explain the Asterisk legislation. And we are going to start with Dana.
2: I believe as long as there is something in place um, to, to you know, preserve due process, If the person is found legitimately to have, uh, you know, committed, uh, you know, know, sexual assault or or anything else then yes, absolutely, Uh, I think that the next school needs to know about it and uh, I I think that's fair as long as there's due process involved.
0: Okay,
3: Lewis. Yeah, I would just, I would uh, second that uh, and say that there is, uh, schools are now uh, under federal guidance uh, moving to establish a more due process in, in the um, uh, investigating sexual assaults. Uh, for too long, it's been on the schools to investigate these when really it's a criminal justice uh, matter. And uh, I think the, uh, it, it should not necessarily be fully the responsibility of the school to do the investigation itself. But I agree that once it's established uh, through formal channels that uh, that should be public information.
0: Okay. Chris.
1: I I tend to agree that we should treat it like any kind of criminal record that that follows a student. Um, You know, but that said, there are a lot of cases where these uh, crimes and and assault charges are very difficult to um, pin down and get a, a clear, concise decision. And I think that's one of the part of the wrestling that higher education institutions have had around this. They aren't. As as Dr. Meyer said, they're not uh, criminal investigators. So it's tricky, this is a a problem that we are beginning to uh, come to grips with as a society and and we need to do a better job. It reminds me frankly of pieces of legislation that we've worked on recently in Montpelier where you look at teachers who have some kind of misconduct on their record and that's not showing up when they move from I don't know, Johnson to St. Johnsbury. Uh, similarly with law enforcement, you've, you've seen that and we've in both cases been able to put a stop to that so that Vermonters know that teachers and law enforcement people in very trusted positions in our communities, um, there's, they're not been handed down because departments just are eager to get rid of them. I think we need to have a due process, but I also think we need to uh, maybe err on the side of believing women and making sure that our institutions of higher ed are safe places for, for all of our communities, but women in particular who you know, really, history owes, owes them one, I would say.
0: Okay,
4: Loyal. Uh, my take on it is uh, first you have to be found guilty because uh, if you're an innocent person, that's gonna ruin your life. You won't be able to go to any college or anything, so that has to be a justice system thing, so there has to be actual you know, crime had to actually take place. Uh, I do agree we do have to do a better job protecting our kids, especially in schools like UVM. Did you know UVM doesn't do any background checks on any of their housekeepers and other employees? There has actually been incidences because of that, so I think since you know like UVM and places like that get any state or federal dollars, they need to be able to do background check on all. Their employees to make our students a uh, you know safer place
5: for edu- for educating our kids. Thanks. Okay,
0: Michael.
5: Uh, yes, I remember in the legislature we worked on a bill for teachers. As uh, Senator Pearson said, I think it was a, a teacher from the Colchester school system that moved to the Burlington school system and and re- became a repeat offender. Um, So I'm for transparency. Uh, We worked on a bill in my committee this year on sexual harassment, and I'm very proud of that bill because we have provisions in that bill that limit the use of do not disclose agreements that employers will impose upon people who are settling cases, and it's analogous.
0: Okay, great. Um, We have one more question from the audience, Uh, and this is how did the recent gun laws passed do anything for school safety? And Louis, we're going to start with you.
3: Well, I uh, <clears throat> I support uh, Act 55. I thought Governor Scott showed a great deal of courage to sign it. It won't stop every potential school shooting, but I think that if we do ever have such a horrific episode, we can at least know that we have made an effort and begun an effort to try and make our schools safe- safer. I think raising the age uh, will is helpful in terms of the actual school shootings. And I think having the uh, red flag law is also very helpful. And in, as we know in the uh, case down near Rutland uh, in Fairhaven, uh, that it was uh, a student uh, contacting the police uh, and that was actually saved a lot of lives in, in all likelihood. So I support Act 55.
0: Okay. Chris.
1: Well, I voted for Act, for S55 and, and uh, I would say that the two, the three gun safety bills, I think in total, uh, took some very positive and meaningful steps that will, in particular, protect uh, students. And I'd and just say personally, my wife is a public school teacher, my little kids are in elementary school, so my entire household is in a school every day, um, all day. And and so this debate, as we were having it, was particularly personal and meaningful for me. But. Um, I think the changes in policy that will do a better job of protecting kids in school in particular, background checks, universal now, so that uh, you cannot lawfully buy a firearm in Vermont without going through a background check, that will help protect a little bit more. Um, The red flag bill, though, is probably the most uh, direct uh, correlation to potential school shootings. You know, if you, uh, prior to that law, if you had a neighbor who was, being very vocal about frustration with the school or maybe even on Front Porch Forum saying how terrible the school was and then you saw them loading firearms into their truck or into their trunk the next day through your front window, there was nothing you could do because those were legally possessed. Now you have the ability or a family member has the ability to call law enforcement and law enforcement can intervene. They can't take those firearms forever, but they can take them for a meaningful amount of time, a couple of weeks while a judge sort of weighs in on the thing. And, and data shows a couple of things. One is that intervening at that moment is really important. You know, the next day, temper's cool. So, so intervening quickly uh, is one of the things that the red flag bill does. And I'll just say 89% of shooting deaths in Vermont are suicides. And the red flag, and, and we, we hardly ever talk about that. But the red flag bill that we passed uh, is our hope to address that crisis that is uh, sort of little spoken about in Vermont, but it's very real.
0: Okay, we're talking about gun laws and school shootings. Loyal.
4: Uh, This was the most frustrating thing I've witnessed in my life of being a Vermonter. Uh, It's the most unconstitutional bill, most frustrating. I'm a gun owner myself and I'll tell you, when I'm elected, I will repeal it. It does nothing to protect anybody. What it it does, it it, uh, punishes law-abiding citizens. That's all it does. It does nothing. So if a felon tomorrow wants to take a gun and go into school, store, bank, they can shoot it up and hurt people. We need to start going after the felons. We need to start going after the actual criminals and not law-abiding citizens. This is going on for two long. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And we should all be angry. All of us gun owners should be angry because they did nothing but waste our time. And that's that's the thing I want to ask Chris Pearson is, how does it protect kids? It doesn't. Tomorrow, a person could go into school. Next day, a person could go into school. What we have to do, we have to educate conflict management so our kids know how to deal with conflict. We need to Educate about stress management in schools so our kids can handle stress. We need to educate our kids on how to handle firearms and what to do if they find one on the ground. You know, these are the things that'll help prevent future shootings. The other thing is we need to get nonviolent offenders off our corrections list so our corrections can go after the violent offenders and check on them more because I do know Several people who are—they uh, uh, shouldn't have guns. I'll just say that they—they're uh, felons and they shouldn't have guns. I know quite a few people that shouldn't have guns, you know. And if I report them, I'm the one that will end up, you know, hurt. And it's because the corrections officers are overloaded. So let's really go after it. Let's get rid of S55 and let's go back to the table and really protect people.
0: Michael.
5: Well, I respectfully disagree. Um, I agree with what Senator Pearson has to say, and I want to say amen on the suicide point. Uh, I just would add two things we did. The question was asked about school safety, and one of the things we did is we raised the age to 21 for the purchase of guns, uh, with, with some exceptions, and I think when you have school shootings, there's a good likelihood that it's going to be another student who may be a high school student uh, who may be age 18 or, uh, or 19. And we also put significant resources into uh, uh, protections in our school, whether it's uh, officers or other mechanical devices. So those are two additional things we did in addition to. And I was p- proud to be a co-sponsor with Senator Baruth of the Universal Background Check Bill. Okay,
0: Dana, we're talking um, gun laws and school shootings.
5: Yep.
2: Well, I have a six-year-old son, just went into first grade this year, and I can tell you, I did not feel like he was gonna be any safer after S-55. It didn't do anything to protect kids, all it does is limit certain items on a firearm. I think that if we were serious about trying to protect the children as opposed to just limit the firearms, which seems to be what the real motive behind S-55 was, I think that if we wanted to protect the children, we'd be doing things like looking at what can we do with the school, what can we do with education involving firearms, what can we do with mental health. But do I feel like S-55 did anything to protect my son?
0: Absolutely not. Okay, and I think we've gotten through that one. So we have about 10 minutes left, so I'm actually gonna have you all, um, believe it or <clears throat> not, we have through our questions, which is disappointing for all of us, but there we are. Um, so we're gonna move on to our closing statements and give you an opportunity uh, to tell folks um, why they should vote for you, and you can also use it as an opportunity, obviously, to talk about any, any rebuttal issues. So we are gonna start with Chris.
1: Okay, Two minutes. <laughs> I love it when you spring this stuff on us, Diane. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, Dana brought up mental health. You know, one of the things that I'm proud of this, this past legislative session, the past biennium actually, was our increased investment in mental health. We've heard for years that uh, mental health beds are hard to come by, that, that our ERs are backed up. Um, and part of the root of that problem is that we've been frankly not paying mental health practitioners uh, a suitable wage, and that creates a lot of transition in the mental health agencies where people are uh, training, get up to speed, and then take off for a job that actually pays them uh, a decent salary. So we significantly boosted mental health wages in uh, in the last two years, and I think that will start to pay dividends because we have a lot of pressure on our mental health system. Um, we've had a wide-ranging debate here, but we haven't talked at all about Clean water. I serve on the Natural Resource and Energy Committee. Clean water, first of all, Lake Champlain is our drinking water uh, for a great deal of Chittenden County and, and beyond. Uh, that seems to be overlooked an, an awful lot as we're talking about this. It's also uh, uh, in deeply, our economy is, is wedded to the lake, and our quality of life is wedded to the lake. So we have got to get serious about handling uh, clean water, and by the way, it's not just Lake Champlain, Lake Memphremagog is coming next, and the Connecticut River is part of the Hudson Valley uh, problem around New York City, so we've gotta deal with water quality across the board. That's a big challenge. That requires us to be creative, to ask uh, hard questions, and I've been willing to do that, and I look forward to continuing to press on that front. Uh, And I will just, I think, close by saying, I've tried very hard and I look forward to continuing to stand up for working families, for middle-class families. I'm proud to be endorsed by Bernie Sanders, by the professional firefighters, by the nurses, by uh, social workers, many other organizations that are watching the work that we're doing in Montpelier closely, Sierra Club, um, have have endorsed my campaign and are uh, joining me in asking you to vote for me November 6th. We have a lot of work to do, and I'd be honored to continue working for the county and in, Ch- in Montpelier, Thank you.
0: Thank you, Chris Loyal. Closing statement.
4: A uh, couple other issues I never got a chance to cover on because uh, you know we had uh, other issues. Uh, one of the things I want to uh, do when I get elected is get rid of fusion. Uh, it makes it harder for us candidates who run under one party. So. What Fusion does is like Chris Pearson running as a Democrat, progressive. He gets all the resources from the Democrats, progressives, he gets voter list, money. What this will do when we get rid of Fusion is he'll have to run under one party and it'll help the other candidates, uh, you know, get a chance to actually win and be competitive. And that's a huge problem that's been going on for a long time, because you see the same people getting elected over and over. And all it does is benefit the candidate, doesn't benefit the voters. So that's one thing I wanna do. The other thing is uh, schools, we didn't get into schools. A lot of local schools are gonna be closed. I don't agree with that. Uh, Back in 2000, I think it's four or five, Lyman-Amistad, Burlington wanted to close one of our schools. What happened is the community came together and we came up with a solution to keep our schools open. So I think the government, again, has to get out of the way, let the communities decide if they want their local schools open or closed. And those are things I want to work on besides, you know, safety issues and getting rid of uh, some of the taxes. bringing our government size down quite a bit. So I'm hoping you'll give me a chance on November 6th and just give me one term. If you don't like me, you can fire me in two years. Thank you.
5: Okay, Michael, closing statements. Thank you, Diane. Um, One of the questions on our sheet that we were given in advance that was not asked was, and I'll read it verbatim, uh, a recent VPR PBS poll found a solid majority of Vermonters support paid family leave and raising the minimum wage both passed by the House and Senate and vetoed by the governor. Those issues are likely to come up again. How would you vote? Uh, I would vote emphatically yes. Um, I had the privilege of being the presenter to the Senate of both of these bills and the lead sponsor of both of these bills. And I just wanna give you some factoids that are amazing to me. Um, Both Senator Pearson and I were at a a speech by Bernie Sanders uh, yesterday And you always hear Bernie talking about the 1%, but he came up with a new figure this time. I think it was new. I hadn't heard it before. He said three families in the entire country have more wealth in this country than 40% of the population. It's mind boggling. Um, And in our workup of minimum wage, people would debate whether minimum wage was the right way to go or not. No one disputed the issue of income inequality and the fact that wages and wealth have gone up in the last 30 years for the upper quintile, but for the rest of us, it has stayed relatively stagnant. We need to do something about that. And I want to say one thing on paid family leave. We had a a joint fiscal office analysis, which is supposed to be neutral, and they found that by 2020, Four, uh, this is on minimum wage, they, again, minimum wage, they found that 65,000 Vermonters would benefit from minimum wage, where only potentially less than a thousand jobs would be adversely infected. And in a weak moment, that person said, he's supposed to be neutral, he said, those are pretty good odds that I would want to roll the dice on. Uh, on paid family leave, the, f- the figure that always struck me, the bill that we came on, it's a very cheap, inexpensive, but incredibly important, worthwhile policy and it would cost the average minimum wage worker a penny and a half an hour to pay for that insurance. And we had no impact on business in terms of them contributing, which I'm not sure I agree with, but even a minimum wage worker would only pay a penny and a half. So I intend to introduce those bills again, if you re-elect me, and I really enjoy the consumer advocacy role that I played all my life, and I have an opportunity to protect Vermonters in the Senate general. Uh, Senate Economic Development, Housing, and General Affairs Committee, thank you.
0: Thank you. Dana, closing statement. Well, I'd
2: like to thank all of the other candidates and incumbents for for being here, and and to Channel 17 for the invite, and to the viewers for the questions and for tuning in. Um, I have been working very hard uh, during this campaign. Uh, Chittenden County's not an easy county to to campaign in, that's for sure. Uh, And I plan on bringing that same work ethic to montpelier um, i'm very approachable my all, all of my contact information is available on my website uh, i invite you if you have any questions to to reach out to me um, I, I am usually very quick to respond to facebook messages emails phone calls and and, and smoke signals whatever you feel like uh, mm-hmm. and finally I would like to wish my wife a happy anniversary. (laughs) Happy anniversary. Thank you.
3: Lewis, closing statement. Thank you, and I'd again like to thank all of those people I've met this year uh, for their uh, kindness and their support. Um, And I I actually believe that every one of our state centers in Chittenden County are really good people and each come with their own unique uh, background. The fact is that I'm the only physician in the state running for the state senate, And I think this year, as we move forward with the all-payer plan, uh, I think it's critically important that we have someone who's still involved, actively involved in medicine, to be there to help uh, protect Vermonters when when it's necessary. Um, I I also will tell you, I did not grow up in Vermont. Uh, I've been here a number of years, though, and I've come to love this state. Uh, There are many things to love, and I think we all can agree that uh, Uh, the mountains, the lake, the the forest, the open space, and all of the seasons, perhaps with the exception of mud season, are are, are things we can easily love. But for me, it's about the people. And when I think about the people in Vermont, one story comes to mind, and I'll tell you briefly. Uh, It was two winters ago. I was at work at Rutland Regional Medical Center, where I'm employed. Uh, It was an extraordinarily blizzardy night in the middle of February, Um, and the roads were nearly covered. And uh, eight year old girl came into the emergency department. She was critically ill. Uh, We did not have the facilities or the staff to care for her. It was clear she needed to be transferred to the University of Vermont where they have a large pediatric intensive care. Helicopters obviously couldn't fly in that weather. So she was gonna have to go by land. As she was being loaded in the ambulance with with one of her parents, my understanding is that the state police put out a bulletin to all of the towns along Route 7 Uh, Telling that this ambulance and this very old child were on their way and every town sent their plows out Uh, And a, a number of private citizens also who had their scanners on went out with their plows 10 to 15 minutes before the ambulance got there in order to keep that road open and make sure that child could get to University of Vermont as quickly and as safely as possible folks I can tell you that would not happen in other areas This is Vermont and this kind of cohesiveness this sense of community is what we have to fight to keep. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen,
0: so much for joining Thanks. me tonight. Thank thank and uh, don't forget to vote now at your town or city hall or on Election Day Tuesday, November 6th. And of course, stay tuned to Channel 17 for ongoing election coverage. Good night.